Well, good morning, everyone. As always, it's great to see your face. Yes, Charlotte, I saw you say good morning to me. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to see you all. And uh, what a blessing it is uh, through technology to, in some small sense, to be able to still connect together. Hard to believe this is the 16th time we've done this. That's like four months if you're doing the math. And that's, uh, that's a long time. A long, long time. Um, but our God will sustain us and continue to you know, encourage and give us the perseverance to keep going so that we can uh, uh, have some semblance of fellowship as well as continued time in the Word and in prayer and worship together. Kathy and I were talking this week. Uh, I forget what the subject was we were talking about, but somehow the subject of uh, naming things came up. And we talked about explorers, like uh, she recently bought me a, a Lewis and Clark book that I read through. Such a fascinating journey that they took. And one of the things that they did is they mapped out the West all the way to the uh, Pacific was to name things. And they'd come on a river and they'd name it. And they'd see a mountain and they'd name it. And they, uh, they basically, Kathy reminded me that in a sense we... We still have the authority that God gave us to name things. Remember, Adam started naming all the animals, and here we are uh, still naming things, you know, some thousands of years later. Uh, I began to think about that, and that we, uh, w that conquerors also do that with regard to lands that they conquer. Uh, one of the best examples is in the second century, the Roman emperor Hadrian, who is just was just a terrible person, uh, but he he had a, an imprint on Israel that uh, is still there to this day. In fact, uh, Hadrian is the one that uh, quartered off the city. If you look at most Roman cities, they're they're quartered off. You've got a, a north-south road called the Cardo and an east-west road called the Decomanus that divides the city into quarters. In the second century, the emperor Hadrian did that, and that is still the four quarters of Jerusalem today. He, uh, Hadrian renamed Jerusalem to as Aelia Capitolina, and he renamed, or that's Jerusalem, and then he renamed Israel as Palestine, which was a name that uh, named after the Philistines, and it was the name, of course, that. Uh, Israel had all the way up until 1947 when the Jews renamed it again. And so the, the significance of naming something is just, uh, it's amazing because it represents authority. When we name something, it represents authority or ownership or sort of an in-your-face type thing in the case of a conqueror to renaming something. Uh, it's like, we own this now. And so we're going to, uh, we're going to give it the name that we're going to call it. And the change of a name is very significant also because it represents a change in the life of uh, a city or a person. For example, a, a, a pleasant change is when uh, a wife takes the name of her husband because it represents a marriage and a, and a very significant change in the life of both the wife and the husband, but particularly the wife because her name changes. The, her name changing represents a very significant change in her whole life. I began to think of uh, some other people that change their names. Uh, most, like movie stars or performers, have stage names. 
uh, you know, we, we hear things like uh, we hear somebody's name and we think, oh, Fred Astaire. Well, you know, Fred Astaire is not his real name. Uh, I can't remember exactly what Fred Astaire's real name is, but it'd be easy for you to find out. There's uh, like some stage names like The Rock. Okay, that's probably not what his mother named him. Uh, or Lady Gaga. You know, Gaga, that does sort of sound like a baby, but uh, that, that's probably not Lady Gaga's original name. These are stage names. And most of these names occur because the original name doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. For example, Henry D John Dutchendorf Jr. doesn't sound as great as John Denver, but that was John Denver's original name. And Marion Michael Morrison isn't really a good name for a tough guy like John Wayne. And so they change their names in, in order to suit their purpose. We name our kids because they're our kids. Uh, I don't name your children. You don't name my children. And I may have names for your children if they come over in my yard and don't act right. But I may, <laughs> I may not share those names. Same with my neighbor's dog. I've got a name for the, for the neighbor's dog as well, but I don't share that with the, with the neighbor's dog. But have you ever found out what your name means? It's pretty fascinating. Uh, my wife's name, Kathy, her name means pure or purity. My brother, Matthew, his name means gift of God. I always thought that was so biblical growing up with him. It didn't really feel like a gift from God. And uh, you know what my name means, Wayne? It means wagon maker. Not that profound, is it? But uh, that's, what, that's the etymology of it. So sometimes, our, obviously, our names have meaning, but they may not necessarily represent us. Like, I'm not a wagon maker. But in the Bible, names had meaning. And when a name was changed in the Bible, it was very significant. It wasn't a stage name. It was God doing something or promising to do something in the life of that person. You think of some very significant name changes in the scriptures. We're going to look at Abraham and Sarah this morning. But others are Jacob, you know, who was renamed Israel. Uh, Simon was renamed Peter. And Saul, of course, uh, was called Paul. And each of these changes of names represented a change in what God had done in that person's life. Oh, and by the way, did you know that God's going to change your name? Let's look together at Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. We've been working our way through the life of Abraham, starting in Genesis 12, where we saw his uh, covenant with the Lord. The Lord God made a covenant with Abraham and promised him unconditionally that God would give him three things. That God would give him land, that God would give him descendants, and that God would give him blessing. Land, descendants, and blessing. If you wanted to think of the Abrahamic covenant, those are the three words that ought to pop in your mind. Land, descendants, and blessing. And these are unconditional promises that God made to Abraham that are still in effect, even though Abraham is dead. That is so significant, especially when we look at the application uh, to our lives today. Abraham originally had the name Abram. How would you like to have the same name for 99 years and then God wake up one day and God says, you know what, we're going to change your name? That'd be tough. I mean, think of all the return address labels you'd have to redo and everything. Well, Abraham had to do that. 
God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and it represented an incredible change in his life. Genesis 17, let's start right in verse 1, and we're going to walk our way down through most of chapter 17 and a little bit of 18 as we look at this uh, significant text. Verse 1 says, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. The name Abram, what the name that he's had up to this point, uh, means exalted father. And it could very well simply represent Abram's father, not necessarily Abram. And so it's more of a representation of uh, Abraham's father, not Abraham himself. But then for God to give him the name Abraham, which means father of multitude, it's a very significant change in Abram's life because it's a promise of the future. And Abram still has no children. So if you read the the last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 16, you see that when we last saw Abraham, he was 86 years old, and now Abram is 99 years old. So it's been 13 years since, again, last, last time we saw Ishmael. So Ishmael, the son of Abraham through uh, Hagar, the, the handmaiden, is 13 years old, but Abram has no son with his wife, Sarah. So for 13 years now, Abraham has sort of assumed that Ishmael is the one through whom God's going to fulfill this promise because, after all, they sort of help God out, and Ishmael is born, uh, Hagar and Ishmael leave, and then they come back, and what do you know? You know, God apparently is going to bless this effort on Abraham and Sarah's part to help God out. And God changes Abraham's name. And uh, for 13 years, there's nothing but silence. So a lot of times when we pray and there's silence, we can sort of mistake the silence for approval. I mean, after all, if God had a problem with it, he'd say something, right? Well, not always. Look at verse 6. God continues. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. 
Every covenant in the, uh, that God makes with people has a sign. There's something visible to display the, the covenant, the invisible promise. For example, in the covenant with Noah, of course, the rainbow is the, the sign. In the covenant with Abraham, it's circumcision. Uh, later down the road, when the uh, Old Testament covenant, or the Old Covenant, Old Testament, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, is the Sabbath. And the sign of the New Covenant, that's, uh, honestly, the Bible doesn't get real specific on that. Some say maybe it's the Holy Spirit, some say it's forgiveness of sins. But every covenant had a sign. And this particular promise to Abraham, which God made all the way back in Genesis 12, now God says, the sign of this covenant the sign that you are willing to participate in this covenant by faith is circumcision. Now, we won't turn there just yet, but in Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. He was justified in the sight of God before he was circumcised. The point being, before there was law, before there was circumcision, before Abraham did anything, other than simply believe God, he was justified. So, circumcision, um, the cutting away of the flesh, sort of represents the cutting away of our own effort. And in the context of this promise, because obviously this, uh, this particular act was in the context of giving Abraham a son. In fact, we're going to go on and see here in the very next verse that the, uh, the cutting away of the flesh is indicative of the fact that God says, you, you, you specifically, you physically are not the one who is doing this as much as me. In other words, God is saying this birth that's going to happen is not of you, it is of me. It is something that I am going to bring about in a miraculous way. So look at verse 15. As Abraham's eyes certainly widened at the promise that gets very narrow now. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And, and will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God changed Sarai's name from Sarai, which means my princess, which would be a wonderful name to give a daughter, Sarai, my princess, to just Sarah, which means princess, or it could mean queen. We get our uh, uh, different words go through different uh, languages, but like when you think of the Russian word czar, which means a ruler or a king, it's, it's the, from the same root as Sarah. It's, you can even hear the, the connection there, uh, the etymolog etymological connection. 
she is going to be a queen. She's going to be a princess. And God says, through Sarah, through this barren wife that you thought you had to sidestep in order to go through Hagar, God says, nope, I'm going to bring about a miraculous conception between you two. And it's going to happen in such a way that I get the glory and you realize that it's done by me and not by you. For 13 years, Abraham has thought it's going to be through Ishmael. In fact, here at the end in verse 18, after Abraham laughs, he basically says, you know what, Lord, we don't, this doesn't have to be hard. We don't have to do it through uh, Sarah. Let's just do it through Ishmael. I mean, he's already here. Just let, let your blessing come through Ishmael. Let's just keep it simple. God says, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it my way. And it's such a way that I get the glory. Look at verse 19. Look at these first few words. But God said no. You know, we could just pause right there and have a whole lesson on those four words. Because those four words are so often heard in our lives as we say, to the Lord, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that my plans might be blessed for, before you. As opposed to saying, Lord, this sounds nuts what you're saying, but we're going to go with, with what you want to do. No, but God said no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him. In other words, not with Ishmael, with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful and I will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Boy, what a splash in the pond that was that day. 13 years of silence and all of a sudden God shows up and rocks Abraham's world. Changes his name, says, nope, it's not Ishmael. Sarah's going to have a son. Here's what you're going to name him. And oh, by the way, this time next year he'll be born. Wow. What an incredible, incredible conversation. Abraham's response was to laugh. And so God says, I want you to name him Isaac. And in Hebrew, Yitzhak or Isaac means he laughs. So it's sort of a, uh, a double meaning of Abraham, you laughed. Let's just go ahead and call him laughter to remind you that I can do incredible things in spite of your disbelief or in spite of your incredulity at my power. Here's the great thing, though. Abraham's waited 25 years so far since Genesis 12. God says you only got one more year to go. Isn't that great? God just, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, it's going to happen through Sarah. Thankfully, finally, God says when it's going to happen. This time next year. This time next year. So he's only got one more year to go. Well, we won't read it, the details of it here, but in the, the last few verses here, verse 23 through 27, we're told that Abraham and his son Ishmael, all his servants are circumcised, and immediately Abraham obeys, which is a wonderful example of how to obey a hard command. 
And by the way, you know, most of the time today when boys get circumcised, it happens as babies. They don't remember it. Uh, I mean, obviously they feel it, but, you know, they don't remember it uh, being circumcised. Abraham is an old man, and all of his servants are well aware of what, what circumcision requires. This was a hard command, but immediately Abraham obeys. Amazing. Well, chapter 18, we won't look at the first eight verses, but uh, you can just kind of glance down through them for a second and see God appears to Abraham again. But this time we're told that he appears to Abraham with two other angels. So we have, we have the Lord and two angels, but they're mentioned as showing up as three men. And so once again, you have the angel of the Lord, or you have this uh, what some scholars believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. You have the Lord in human form there before Abraham, which is just an astonishing bit of theology right here in the first book of the Bible. And I love it there in that last verse. I think it's verse uh, 7. Let's see what verse is it today. It's verse 8. Look at verse 8. It says, he, Abraham took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. God served, uh, Abraham served what today is considered an unkosher meal. He served milk and meat in the same meal. You see that? Milk and the calf, verse 8. Not only that, did he serve an unkosher meal to God, and God ate it. So, I don't know, I'd love to see... uh, the explanation of this in modern terms of uh, why, it, why it's considered unkosher, because obviously God had no problem with it. So anyway, well, look at verse 9. Let's get into the, the nature of the visit of these three people to, um, to Abraham. Verse 9 says this, They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing, and Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So we're not told here whether or not uh, Abraham had already told Sarah, you know, the news. I kind of get the impression that he hadn't, like maybe he was going to let this be a surprise. (laughs) I don't know, but she seemed uh, surprised by this news. Even if she had heard it, she still responded this way. She laughed, just like Abraham. And uh, I don't know the last time you've been camping, but uh, a tent wall is not very soundproof. And so she's standing there behind the tent, and she can hear everything that's being said by these strangers that come up and uh, are talking with her husband. And Sarah's response was the same as Abraham. She laughs. But she laughs, notice it says, to herself. So this is just internal. And the Lord responds to Sarah's internal response. Look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, I like this. He's asking Abraham this question. Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? 
Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. So God, while he was telling Sarah of the miracle that he would perform, performed a miracle in the sense that he responded to the hidden and she thought private reaction of her heart by asking out loud why she had thought what she thought. In other words, if I can read your mind, I probably can uh, allow you to uh, have a son. But the key statement there is in that question. And if you are one that likes to underline in your Bible or highlight in some way, here's what I recommend you highlight. The question there that God asks in verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Because it gives us our first principle from the text. And it's this, that human impossibilities are merely opportunities for God's power. Human impossibilities are merely opportunities for God's power. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? This, the question is rhetorical because the answer is no. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Can God cause this to happen? Yes, He can. In fact, uh, we've only got a year to wait and to see exactly that God can do what He says He can do. You know, we tend to focus on the limitations of our situation as we see them, as we understand them, instead of filtering impossibilities through the power of God. Abraham focused on his age. Notice he brought it up. Here's how old I am. Here's how old Sarah is. This is ridiculous. There's no way that this can happen. Sarah focused on her age and she laughed. But age isn't a factor for God. You know, many centuries later, there would be another angel who would come to another woman on the other end of life, to a virgin named Mary, and announce another impossible conception. And the angel would say the same thing to Mary that Sarah overheard. Uh, The angel Gabriel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. It's, it's basically the same idea of what uh, Sarah overheard that day uh, when the Lord was talking with Abraham. Trouble is our response to God's word, honestly, more often than not, is that of Sarah, not of Mary. We tend to laugh when we think about the impossible work that God has still to do in our lives. We tend to think, there's no way it can be done. And humanly speaking, there is no way it can be done. But nothing is impossible with God. You know, we we laugh at the notion. In fact, I, I spoke with a really good friend that Kathy and I have over in Israel who, who essentially laughed at the notion that all I've got to do is place my faith in Christ and every bad thing I've ever done is forgiven. That's laughable from a human perspective. But nothing's impossible with God. We laugh at the idea of giving a regular portion of our income to the church. 
We're already struggling financially. How is giving up more of my money in worship and service to God actually going to help me in any way? We have to trust the Lord with that. It's impossible, humanly speaking, but it's not impossible with God. Now, we can leave, uh, leave Genesis and turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 4. The Apostle Paul uses this example here and gives us a principle by example. Romans chapter 4. You know, the list goes on and on of the impossible things in our lives. Uh, we, could, we could raise our blue hands, as it were, and each share what impossible situation we're dealing with right now. And the fact is, nothing is impossible for God. And I think that many of us might believe, uh, we do believe, that, that uh, nothing is impossible for God. But then when it comes to the practical day-to-day -day terms of actually walking in faith and trusting God with it, and allowing our faith to guide how we live our lives, whether that we live in fear or in panic, or we allow anxiety to rule us, or we're going to say, you know what, Lord, because nothing is impossible with you, if this happens, it's because you've allowed it to happen, not because things are out of control. Romans 4, look down at verse 18. Down at verse 18, it says this, Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. I like this because the bottom line of Abraham's belief never wavered. He laughed, Sarah laughed, but if you look also in Hebrews 11, which we won't turn to, but if you were to look there, you would see both Abraham and Sarah uh, by name as a model of faith and believing and trusting that what God said actually would come true. But here's another principle that we get here from Romans that uh, relates also not only to Abraham, but to our lives. And here it is. Impossibilities best convince us that our success is of God. Impossibilities best convince us that our success is of God. You know, there's nothing in life like a little bit of futility to remind you that the success we enjoy in life is because of God, not because of us. If we are given the free reign, we tend to run the ship aground. If uh, we're given the steering wheel, we tend to drive off in the ditch. But when we trust the Lord, we realize that, uh, that our impossibilities, that our success is because God has t taken our impossibilities and has led in the way that he wants to go. You know, most of life, I've learned, is living in the gaps of waiting on God. There is God's promise, and then there is the fulfillment of that promise, and most of our life is here in the gap between the, f the promise and the fulfillment. 
Now, you remember up front, we talked about the fact that uh, God had promised Abraham land, descendants, and blessing. Descendants, Abraham would ultimately see. And in a sense, you could say he saw blessing, though ultimately we know that blessing came through Jesus. Um, but the land, we're going to see that uh, later on as well. Abraham never received that. Hebrews 11 goes on to talk about the fact that all these, this is sort of a paraphrase, all these died without receiving the promises. God's promise to Abraham required a resurrection. Now, I say that to say we have to remember that as well because we can walk through life with a feeling of frustration and futility. God, why are you not bringing about a resolution to all these impossible things I'm dealing with? And the reality is, the resolution you're waiting for may be at resurrection, just like it is with Abraham. Abraham is still waiting for the fulfillment of some of those promises. And frankly, we will be too. So, as we go all the way to the grave without, fulfilled, uh, without complete fulfillment of all that God has promised us, realize that's okay. Because our existence is not just in this life. Our existence includes the next life and eternity. And so resurrection is an essential part of our faith and of the well-being of our spirits as we walk through life day to day, that we're constantly looking forward to the future because it is the future that God promises that He will bring about uh, uh, what He has promised in our lives. Let me read a verse to you from Galatians. You can uh, just listen to it. You're familiar with it, but it works well in this context. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Don't become weary in doing good. The NIV says, for we will reap a harvest in due time if we don't grow weary. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and says, When I am weak, then I am strong. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness. God changed Abraham and Sarah's name. God changed uh, Peter's name. God changed Jacob's name. And I mentioned up front that God's also going to change your name. Let me read to you a couple of verses from Revelation. Um, you might just jot the references down. Revelation 2.17 and 3.12. 2.17 and 3.12. But here, here's the, here are the verses, or parts of the verses. I won't read all of them. It says, I will, this is Jesus' words, I will give him a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. That's a lot of new names. I count four there that Jesus mentioned. There's first of all, there's a name known only to you, which is really special. Second, the name of God. Third, the name of Jerusalem. And then fourth, Jesus' new name, whatever that is. So there is, there is the new naming uh, system that God set up with Abraham and Sarah is something he's going to do in our lives as well. And again, that represents authority. It represents change. It represents blessing in a way that is um, very special and very personal. 
I like that. There's a new name known only to you. But it represents the impossibilities that uh, we face now in our lives that God one day will bring full and complete resolution for. So whatever it is that you continually to bring before the Father and God continually has you in that gap of waiting on Him, just remember, He hasn't forgotten you. He hears, He sees, He has a promise to bring a resolution uh, in His time. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for naming Abraham and Sarah, for giving them these names that represented what they would be, not necessarily what they were. When Jesus saw Peter for the very first time, he says, I say to you that you are Simon, you shall be called Peter. That there is this statement of what will be in the future. In fact, it is so certain we're going to go ahead and give you that name now. You've done the same with us. We read in Revelation that the name that you will give us is so certain that it's written as if it's already done. Father, we're grateful for the change that you will bring about in our lives because like Abraham, we live in this gap of waiting on you and trusting you and hoping against hope that what you have promised in our lives will ultimately come about one day. And we look forward to that time. We ask that you would help us, as Paul wrote to, uh, to the Galatians, help us not to become weary in doing good, that the long wait of the harvest would uh, not so discourage us that we would give up hope and that we would quit, quit the work that this life requires, the hard work that this life requires, knowing that one day you will make it all right and you will make it all worth it. We thank you for that. And we look forward to it. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.